Take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to read the, the next part of the sentence that we started last week. Colossians chapter 1, verse, verse 15. Working down through verse 18. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Verse 15. And it's talking about Jesus, remember, uh, that um, he's, that God the Father has translated us to the kingdom of his dear son, back in verse 13, and now he's going to talk about the dear son in verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. We pray that you would open it to us this morning. Would you help me just to share just a bit of what you gave me during the week as we studied this passage, Lord. Help us to understand it and help it to transform and change us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, uh, by him all things were created. And and Paul is, uh, is giving beautiful poetic expression to the preeminence of Christ. In the world that we live in today, there's something missing. Um, It's been lost so recently uh, that it's maybe difficult for us to even realize how how much we've lost in uh, in this moment. And that's the fact that if you go back just 20 or 30 or 40 years, we still had some concept of of awe, um, of of the kind of slack-jawed uh, amazement. Um, and I was actually reminded of this uh, when I had uh, was scrolling through a feed and they had a, a, a video demonstrating what, um, what a pop culture icon this particular music artist was and how much awe people had for him. Um, this character is standing up on stage and not doing anything. He's just standing there. And while he stands there on stage, the crowd is just screaming and screaming and screaming. And then they, they, they scream for so long and they get so worked up that multiple members of the audience start fainting and have to be carried out, some of them, because they're, they're going bonkers. And here he is with flashing lights and a flashy outfit, and he, he holds that moment of tension as the crowd just adores him. 
And I couldn't, I couldn't help but think in that moment, like, this is, just honestly, this is what idolatry looks like, right? When we see a person and the crowd is giving him honor that really should only go to God. But this was a day and a time when people didn't scroll through social media and see the most intimate moments of their pop culture icons shared on social media. So what it meant was that those, those, those artists were like, they were um, like other than us. Like they were special. We could put them up on a pedestal and we could uh, in our minds kind of think to ourselves that they're something different than us. Like they're not like mere mortals. They're some, something really special. You older ones would, would remember uh, the days of Elvis, Elvis uh, Presley um, touring. And he had that same kind of adoration, right? He was seen as almost like a god. Um, the Beatles uh, had their day. Um, we don't treat artists like that anymore. Uh, no, I'm not saying that we don't scream at their concert. I don't, but I'm, I'm not saying people don't scream at their concerts. But there's something deep down inside of us that's lost that sense of awe because we recognize what's the saying? They put their pants on the same way you and I do, one leg at a time, right? And people will, will even say that because we just recognize humans are just humans and they're just... And there's really, in, in that sense, we could say, well, that's a good thing to not uh, look on with adoring idolatry to another human. But what I'm wanting us to think about is is how the loss of the sense of awe affects how we see God. And specifically in this passage, how we see the person of Jesus Christ. That there, it is good to recognize that people are just mortals. We should never worship them. We don't bow before them. But it's not good when we lose that sense of awe for who Jesus is and we fail to recognize him in all of his glory. And this passage begins by saying he is the image of the invisible God. He is the impression of the invisible God. And to us, we see um, because of the categories and even our language, the way we think, when we say he's the image of the invisible God, Think about it like this. I, I've never seen before this, the rows of dyes that stamp out the pennies and quarters and dimes that you and I used to use for change before we started using credit cards. Um, I've never seen those dyes, but I know what they look like because I've seen a penny, right? And, and the, those, the, the molten metal or that, that hot metal is poured into the dyes, is laid in those dies and the press is brought down upon them and then when it's done out come pennies and the pennies are perfectly impressed so they give me a visible impression of to me right now the invisible uh, die that was used to make them and Paul here is saying that Jesus is the impression the exact impression of what God is like if you want to know what God is like look at Jesus and in ancient thought, there was a, there was a, a correlation, like a, a, a connection between the image and the thing that it was imaging. So he's not saying, Jesus is not God. He's just the image of the invisible God. What Paul is saying is that the image is God. 
And God is expressing himself in this image. And he's wanting us to look to Jesus for who he is. He is the image of the invisible God. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him unto us. If you want to know what what God looks like, God the Father looks like, you look at Jesus. If we want to know the character of God, we look to Jesus. And the, the teaching that was becoming prevalent in the age that Paul is preaching to, we've mentioned it before, and it's the, the, the teaching of Gnosticism. And it was the idea that, that God, being spirit and being perfect and holy, and mater- the material physical world being sinful and damaged and broken, it, the material world is too sinful for a holy God to have anything to do with it. So what the Gnostics taught is that God made a spiritual being that was a a little bit less holy than he was. He he makes this creature, and it's an emanation from himself, so he makes one creature, and then the creature that he made makes another creature that's even a little bit less holy and a little bit closer to the material world. Are you following me? I know this sounds kind of convoluted, but this is the kind of mindset that they had. They said, God didn't make the world. Instead, he makes a creature that makes another creature on and on and on, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. This happens until finally there's a creature that's enough distant from God that it can make the material universe. But the problem is what they actually believed was that the thing that made the universe was evil because it wasn't like God. It was unholy. And that's the only thing that could touch this world. And it it led to a kind of teaching that sometimes we can fall into. The kind of idea that there's something wrong with our body, that there's something wrong with the physical world, and that salvation and death and heaven are all about delivering us out of this this terrible material world that God has made so that we can be in in some kind of a a non-material, kind of gauzy, see-through, transparent universe with nothing fun, nothing cool to do except just sit around and maybe play harps or something, right? I, I know that sounds like a caricature, but it's not really that far off what, from what some people's ideas of heaven are. I can still remember flannel graph from when I was growing up or books that I would flip through, that that's exactly what they pictured heaven like. You're, you're like sitting on these clouds and like wearing these goofy white robes and like playing these. Now, understand, Revelation describes white robes and harps and all of those things, but they're... they're They're metaphors and pictures to help us grasp the holiness and beauty of heaven, not to give us the idea that heaven is not actually something attractive and wonderful. Because heaven is real. It's even more real than the material universe around us. And Paul wants us to understand that God didn't have to make these emanations of himself because he couldn't touch the world that we live in. But the God who is full of majesty and glory and honor and power had a son who is himself, that God is three persons in one and that Jesus Christ, the very son of God, was born of a virgin and is the image of the invisible God. And all things were created by him, not by some angelic host that have some great distance from God, but that God himself created the world and everything we look around on was made by the hands of a holy God. He made all things, whether visible or invisible, things in heaven and things on earth. Notice how those two things fit together. He's saying 
Everything that exists was made by God. Christ is the master architect of the world in which we live. Not just the material universe that we can see, but the immaterial and spiritual cosmos that we live in. Everything that exists bears within it the fingerprints of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants them to understand that Jesus is not just uh, first among equals. He's not just like chairman of the board. It's not that Jesus is in some kind of a a struggle for control with, with other equally valid gods out there, but that he is the one and true only God. Listen to what he says. He's the one who made principalities, powers, thrones, and dominions. These are actually, in Greek, they're technical words for, um, for angelic hierarchies. That you and I, I mean, we think maybe archangel, and sometimes like some people get into uh, like the idea of um, Beelzebub or, or different, um, there's unfortunately a whole school of demon- demonology where people study like which demons are most powerful and, and what about these angels and archangels and cherubs and, and how they all fit together. But Paul's saying that's not really what matters. What matters is over all of them, supreme above them, the one that actually made them, the one that created them is Jesus Christ. He's the one that made them. He isn't an angel just the most powerful angel or the firstborn angel, uh, as some false religions teach that uh, Jesus and Michael were brothers and, uh, and that um, Jesus just achieved his Godhead, I guess, better or quicker than Michael or something. Um, because what they're, what they're doing away with is the idea that, that Jesus is God, not just a God, but he is God. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. What is Paul saying? What he's saying is that the center of the universe, the thing that the cosmic galaxies swing around, the center of everything, the, the, the purpose of every breath we take, the reason for the existence of every flower and every star, the thing that upholds and, and, and pulls together the universe of infinite variety that we live in is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that this world consists, is not only made by him, but it's made for him. In other words, everything that was ever created or made was made for one reason, To glorify God. And God is expressed and revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That everything in this universe was made by Jesus for Jesus. When when you're a, a, a maker, a builder, a creator, the things that you're creating, you create for your purpose. Do you follow me? I'm I'm keenly aware that so many things in my life don't fit exactly the way I want to. So there are things in my car that if I could just change and move over here just a little bit, then it would would make me a happy man because it would just fit my lifestyle a little better. Sometimes I'm using my phone or my tablet or I'm walking around my house and I'm reminded of the fact I didn't design and build this. There's things in it I would change. Do you follow? 
Maybe you feel the same way about your car or your house or your phone or uh, something in your life that you point to and you go, if I would have made it, I would have made it differently. And, and then you've had the joy of making something that you custom built for you. And every little detail that you made was made to make you happy, to be exactly what you wanted it to be. And what the scripture is telling us here is that everything in this universe, Jesus Christ custom made and designed and built, and he made it for one purpose, to bring glory to himself. Now, the world around us has been marred by sin. It's been damaged. So when we talk about the fact that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that that when we look at him, we see the impression of God the Father stamped on his character. We're keenly aware that Scripture says that all of us are the image of God. We're all made in the image of God, but in a different way, in two ways. First of all, because we're we're not divine as Christ is divine. We are not God. God is God and you're not but in a second way because you and I have been damaged by sin. And in fact, as we imitate one another, we, we discover that you have to be careful when you imitate other people because they're not God either. They're not perfect either. They've been damaged by sin. It's as if the die that shaped all of us has been marked by the sin that Adam committed so that every one of us are bent. We're bent in on ourselves. We're bent towards sin. We're bent towards disobedience. And it's only through the fullness of the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, that it it helps us to overcome that bent and to live a life that pleases God every day. And yet Jesus revealed to us what it looks to live the unbent life. He reveals to us what the unmarred image of God looks like. He showed us what it means to be truly human. And Paul says... This world that we live in is is shaped and formed by him and for him. And he's the one that holds things together. Everything in this world, he's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And I love the final phrase there, all things he might have the preeminence. I have children that have already started struggling over which one gets to be boss. Who gets to be boss? Who gets to be first? Who gets to have the first piece of toast out of the toaster? Who gets to have the first bowl of oatmeal? Right? Now, none of you act that way ever. And I'm sure those of you that had children, your children didn't behave that way. But mine do. And that's because somewhere deep inside of us, we want to be first. And when it comes to other humans, it's pretty easy for us to convince ourselves that we should be first. When we're in traffic, we realize that something inside of us said that we ought to be first. And whenever people cut me off, it's because they're rude and unkind and not paying attention and idiots. Whenever I cut people off, it's because I'm in a hurry, I'm busy, and I had somewhere to go quickly. Do you see what I'm saying? We want to be first. But yet, when we realize it, especially as the Holy Spirit reveals us to us, we realize, I'm just, I'm just human. I don't deserve to be first. But when we see Jesus for who he is, what we realize is this is one. 
that no human could ever shout loud enough and long enough that they're praising him too much. If Jesus stood before those adoring crowds and they begin to faint, it wouldn't be because we're like, oh my goodness, there they go off about him again. Instead, it's because Jesus is worthy of that honor and glory and praise. And it's amazing to think, especially for somebody in Paul's day, because now Jesus has receded in history by 2,000 years, enough that he, he takes up this, this, um, this gauze of unreality. Maybe I'm the only one that feels this way. Maybe the rest of you don't struggle with this, but do you ever stop and meditate in a moment and just say, Jesus really is real? And there was a day when on this planet we live on, his feet left footprints in the dust of the ground. That Jesus walked around this earth and he worked. In fact, for 30 years he just lived a fairly normal life. Took care of his parents. Taught, listened. Had friends. Hung out. And then as he begins to live out his earthly ministry... He healed real people with real diseases. And it was, a, it was a real body just like you and I have that he had. In fact, uh, his body was able to die. It wouldn't be so shocking if, if we imagine him as some kind of, uh, his, some kind of um, physical but you know, not mortal. Surely not able to die. But Jesus' body was subject to death. So I would assume that it was also subject to able to be sick. He was able to, to, um, to get a cold, to stub his toe. All of the things, he was human. He shared in our humanity. And yet there was something about him. And as I was studying this and thinking about this, sometimes we can reach into literature and find an example of something that captures some aspect of what we see expressed in the person and work of Jesus. And I was thinking about something I've quoted a few times before, a book that I've read a number of times, um, The Lord of the Rings. And there's a, there's a moment in the story where, where four little characters, uh, little, little people, they're, they're little midgets, um, have started a journey, a dangerous journey. And um, they're looking at, at uh, risks and, and enemies on every side. And they've pulled in for the night to a, a, little, uh, a little pub, a little hotel. And as they're sitting there in the, in that, um, in the, the saloon, not the saloon, but the pub, you know, where the, the restaurant, and they're eating, and, and they notice over in the corner a weather-beaten stranger, a man with, with muddy boots and a cloak pulled tight over his head, and Somebody says to them at one point, you know, he's a ranger. You want to stay for, away from them. They're, they're dangerous people. You don't want to get around them. But he's, he really just looks like, a, like a, just an everyday fellow, a little sinister, but nothing to really impress you with the muddy boots and the weather-beaten cloak. But that night when they go to bed, he ends up showing up in their room, and uh, he already knows quite a bit about their, their um, mission, and he begins, he begins to take the trip with them. They call him Strider. And as they take that journey with him, this man that had seemed so normal and so ordinary in the beginning 
they begin to learn more and more about who he is. They begin to recognize that this isn't just an ordinary man. That his skills and his wisdom and his age and his strength and his courage begin to draw out of them admiration. And what they discover by the end of that story is that that man in that weather-beaten coat and mud-stained riding boots is the king. He He is a hero beyond all heroes. He's a healer. Not just any king, but a glorious king, full of power and majesty, who strikes awe and fear into the hearts of his enemies. And I thought about if we could just grasp those two parts, those two aspects of Christ that he brings together so perfectly. If he were to walk in through the back door as he was when he walked this earth before he was glorified, we wouldn't see him different from probably anybody that we see on the streets. Just an, just an ordinary man. But as we come to know him and his love and his gentleness and his graciousness. And then we know him in his power, in his majesty, his authority, his courage, his truthfulness. We realize, there comes a moment where we realize that he is the king. That in all things he deserves the preeminence. That when he sits down on his throne, every knee should bow to him. Every tongue should confess to him that he is Lord and glorify God the Father. Because this this man is not just a man. He is God himself come in human flesh to reveal to us what God is truly like and to rescue us from our sin. As he's just said just a few verses earlier, he said, We have redemption in him through the forgiveness of sins. Through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus Christ is the center of the universe. The one that all of creation bends its knee toward. But he's also the one who died on the cross. Who gave up his life. So that the wrath of God could be satisfied. So the justice of God could be answered. So that you and I could stand before a holy God. Forgiven and transformed by His grace. I I hope this morning you grasp just the tiniest twinkle of the awe and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that it causes you to fall down on your knees. To recognize Him for who He is. And to cry out with faith in Him. This is the King that has promised if you confess Him and if you repent of your sins, He will forgive and transform you. And when He is King, He brings submission to all that He rules over. So when He becomes King in your life, He gives you the ability to live a life of victory over sin and evil. The way that you're able to live victoriously over sinful habits and sinful patterns and and, and uh, even the, the brokenness of sin that we're born with that gives us tendencies towards sin, the way you live with victory over that is through the victorious death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the One who made all things, the One who upholds all things, and the One in whom is the purpose for all things.
And when we come to him, we find our purpose. Without him, our world has no center. We wander in purposelessness. But when we turn to Jesus, we find in him the center that our heart longs for. We find reason for our living. We find hope. And I just challenge you right now, turn to Jesus. Turn to him. Cling to him. Accept him. Turn from your rebellion. Accept Jesus. And those of you that are serving him, I encourage you, meditate on Jesus and who he is. Allow this reality to to sink deep into your heart. Allow it to define you. Allow it to determine your direction. And someday, the way that we respond to Christ is going to determine our destiny for eternity. May God help us here and now to make the right decision. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing Jesus to us. And thank you for helping us, Lord, to turn to him. We know that's only by your grace. Those that don't know him, Jesus, would you help them to turn to you? Those that don't know you, have have never come to know you for themselves, Lord, help them to come to know you in a personal way. As we leave this place, Lord, follow us with your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Christ. Understand Amen. faith, it's not counting on me. It's the hope and assurance of what I can see. It's the daily relying on Jesus to be providing more grace faithfully. Further proving his great love for me with grace for the moment, all that I need, grace for the moment, and faith to receive the promises given to those. that I need the promises given to those who